Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Huge Pex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new listeners in Tasmania recently did. Thanks a lot for listening, you crazy devils. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us on iTunes, I will be sure to read it on this very show. And on that note, here is a five-star review which just came in this past week from new friend of the show, Carl Grice. He writes, Oh baby, I like it raw. Attitude Podcast. As a fan of wrestling review podcasts, I must say this is fast emerging as one of my favorites. Henry Masters solo presenting with excellent humor and glorious sound bites. Definitely worth subscribing to. Thank you very much for the kind words, Carl. Awesome review there. Please be sure to give Carl a follow on Twitter at LoveGun13. That's L-U-V-G-U-N-N-13. And since he mentioned my use of glorious sound bites, because Carl has that LoveGun Twitter handle, I will now honor him by playing a clip from the movie Role Models, where Sean William Scott explains the meaning of the song Love Gun by Kiss to a 12-year-old boy. This song is called Love Gun, and it's about Paul Stanley's dick. Now this girl's gonna get some of his dick. No shit! You pull the trigger of mine! Love gun! See, Ronnie, his dick is the gun! Now, before we begin, a quick announcement. I had previously stated that Martin Dixon from the New Blood Rising podcast would be appearing on this episode, and in fact, we actually did record episode 21 together. I even tweeted out that I had a blast doing it with him, which was absolutely true. Unfortunately, we had some audio issues with the file, so I just decided to do a quick solo recording of this episode. The good news is that Martin is scheduled to join the show for episode 22, so don't worry, folks. We'll make it work. I promise, Martin Dixon shall return, and he will do an awesome job, as usual. All right, so with that being said, let's jump into Raw. It is Monday, May 11th, 1998, and we are live from the creatively named Baltimore Arena in Baltimore, Maryland. We open with a recap of last week's festivities, where Vince McMahon told Mick Foley that he would name him the number one contender for Stone Cold Steve Austin's WWF title if Foley would beat the crap out of his own best friend Terry Funk in a no-holds-barred match. Sure enough, Mick did just that, and the show went off the air with Vince handing Foley his dude-love ring attire as the two of them hilariously danced with the dudettes. Have Vince and Foley formed an alliance? It certainly seems to be shaping up that way. Cue up the opening theme song, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. I noticed quite a few noteworthy signs in the audience tonight, and here is a brief list. Dude Love plus Strippers equals ratings. I'm taping Nitro. The Rock sucks cock. Eat a dick, Vince. Lick my nuts, Vince. I'm sensing a pattern here. I just came out of China. Bulldog in WCW equals Jobber. Miguel Perez, Savio Vega, D'Lo Brown equal underrated, 
and a sign with a drawing of someone taking a crap on a toilet, along with the phrase, the birth of Triple H. The Baltimore crowd clearly brought their A-game tonight. We begin with Vince McMahon walking to the ring, accompanied by loud boos and chants of Austin. He begins by telling us that Stone Cold Steve Austin will be competing in tag team action tonight on Raw, which Jim Ross and Michael Cole claim is news to them. Vince then introduces us to a man who has proven he is willing to make the necessary sacrifice to become the number one contender for Stone Cold's WWF title, Dude Love. El Duderino's theme music hits, but when Foley emerges from backstage, he's actually dressed in a suit coat and tie with his hair tied back, and he's even sporting a pair of glasses. He is, however, also wearing sweatpants and sneakers, so I guess he's still staying somewhat true to his roots. Foley takes the mic and proceeds to tell the world who he is now. Mr. McMahon, last week on this very program, I seemed somewhat confused as to what my identity truly was. He's even shaved. Now I am proud to say, only one week later, I know exactly who I am. He looks good, JR. I am a well-educated man. I am a speaker of four different languages. Really? I am a reader of Greek tragedy and a student of American history. I am a lover of women. I am a leader of men. And I am a surprisingly good dancer for a big man. I am the king of hardcore wrestling, and as Stone Cold Steve Austin will find out at Over the Edge, I am the world's toughest SOB. I am the future World Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion. I am Dude Love. The boss loves it. He's all smiles. You know something, Mr. McMahon? For a long time, I've been ashamed to admit this. But for quite some time, it seemed that Dude Love had lost his smile. I am now happy to report that with the support of you, Mr. McMahon, and the whole World Wrestling Federation, I have found that smile and it certainly feels good. <laughs> and this time, Mr. McMahon, a handshake is just not going to do it. Oh, no. They're hugging. Last week, they were dancing. This week, they're hugging. Do you think there's a conspiracy, folks? Vince tells Dude he's proud of him, and not only that, but he has a few surprises for him. In his match against Steve Austin at Over the Edge, there will be a few special guests, namely guest timekeeper Gerald Briscoe, and guest ring announcer Pat Patterson, who both head to the ring. Vince also attempts to introduce a special guest referee, but no one emerges from behind the curtain. After a few seconds, Vince walks up the ramp and heads backstage, presumably to go find this mystery man. We then get quite a bit of dead air until Pat Patterson introduces us to the man who will be the special referee, a man who he trollingly refers to as the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, Vince McMahon. Sure enough, Vince comes back out dressed in a referee shirt, and it now seems like the deck has been sufficiently stacked against Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
Vince Foley and the Stooges pose together as JR wonders how Austin can possibly overcome the odds at Over the Edge. Well, he frequently shows up at the arenas wearing fanny packs and he still somehow manages to look badass, so my personal opinion would be that there is nothing Steve Austin can't do. Next up, we cut backstage where Kevin Kelly is awaiting the arrival of Stone Cold, but instead we see Sable and she completely blows him off entirely and walks right past him. In case you need a reminder, Sable is facing her husband Mark Merrow in a match tonight, so stay tuned for that because you may get to see spousal abuse live on camera and thankfully not the kind that involves Johnny Depp. We then cut to pre-taped footage from earlier today where DX's invasion of WCW continued. Not only that, but Jim Ross informs us that their actions actually caused WCW to call 911 on them. So this time out, DX are headed to WCW's headquarters at the CNN Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and we get a crudely photoshopped image of graffiti being spray-painted on the side of the building, which says, DX rules, WCW, suck it. Much like two weeks ago, DX are dressed in their army fatigues and riding a military vehicle, but this time they're walking right up to WCW's office and attempting to talk a security guard into letting them inside. Let's take a listen. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. This WCW's office? This WCW's office? We're just wondering. Yeah. I swear they all want to talk to me. Right, they do want, they to, want talk to talk to us. They like me. They, they like they do. Yeah, they really do. They do. Okay, why don't we tell... Okay, let me tell you what you do. Okay, okay, you tell me what I, I do, and I'll, I'll tell you if I'll do it. I don't Step aside and, 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 and let these gentlemen here. Okay, sure, okay. Come on in, sir. Come on, sir. How, How are you today? How are you doing, sir? How are you? Good to see you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Have you ever been to Stanford? Let me tell you what it's like in Stanford. The building is huge. It's like 15 stories. It's got a big WWF sign on the top of it, which is a lot better than this. This is horrendous. Oh, I know what it is. We do have a meeting with the cops that are coming. Oh, you know what? To get out of here. No, they're beating up the doors because they're giving free tickets away to tonight's Monday night. What stood out to me the most about this clip was the fact that Billy Gunn did all of the talking during that segment. Billy is not usually the mouthpiece of the group, but I did find him pretty amusing here. Kudos to Mr. Ass for having what was probably the finest moment of his career, which involved him talking in front of a camera. Up next, we headed backstage again, where Kevin Kelly was still waiting for Stone Cold Steve Austin to arrive. He's standing in front of a large metal gate, and we soon hear some loud banging against the metal. Kevin assumes that it's Austin, so they slowly begin to raise the gate, and then... I marked out huge because I completely forgot about this moment. We see that it's not Austin at the door, but rather, well, I'll just play the clip for you. There's Kevin Kelly awaiting the arrival of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh-oh. All right, guys, this, this could be him. Come on, open the door. Boy, Stone Cold Steve Austin, I wonder if he heard the bombshell that Vince McMahon dropped at the top of the broadcast. And wait a minute, this could be him. Al Snow. Hey, Kevin Al- Kelly. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? <laughs> I got some tickets. No, we're getting there, okay? I know we're running late. If you had told me the right way to go, we'd have went there. We went down the wrong street. Now shut up. How do we get to our seats? Well, I got I'm, some beauties here. This yeah, is where little strings, but you know, we got them. This is where the WWE superstars are coming in. I'm waiting on Stone Cold Steve Austin. Have you seen him? What? Huh? I don't know. What are we talking about? How do we get in the building? I, I, try that way. What way? Go down and to the right. See, I told you, didn't I? I told you down and to the right, you said back here. You were wrong. You were wrong. For a change. I said to the right, you said back here. Al Snow and Head. What, what are they doing here? 
That's right, it's the WWF debut of Al fucking Snow, along with his best friend, a mannequin head named appropriately Head, which goes on to spawn roughly a billion oral sex jokes. Now, when I say this is Al Snow's WWF debut, I'm not being 100% truthful there. He was previously with the company from 1995 to 1997, but he never used the name Al Snow in the WWF before now. Instead, he was forced to utilize a variety of lousy gimmicks, including the Japanese luchador hybrid Avatar, the quote-unquote ninja assassin Shinobi, and Leaf Cassidy, one half of the New Rockers, alongside a well-past-his-prime Marty Jannetty. Needless to say, none of these gimmicks set the world on fire. In 1997, Snow left the WWF and began his second tenure in ECW, where his career began to take off thanks to his adoption of a schizophrenic gimmick where he would be the only person who could hear Head talking to him. If you ever get a chance to watch Al Snow in ECW at the peak of his popularity, when the entire crowd was holding up foam mannequin heads and dancing along to his entrance, you should definitely check it out. Truly a sight to behold. As a wrestler, not all that great, but as a character, pretty goddamn entertaining. Up next, we had our first match of the evening, Vader versus Barry Windham, who is accompanied by Jim Cornette and your NWA Tag Team Champions, the new Midnight Express. This was a very short match, but it did feature one noteworthy botch, where Windham went for a sunset flip on Vader, but Vader accidentally fell backward and landed on Windham, which he had to no-sell. They would later redo the spot, and this time Vader fully sat down on Wyndham's chest, which had to have hurt. He then followed it up with a Vader bomb, and that was enough to pick up the three count. After the match, the new Midnight Express attempted to jump Vader, but he quickly dispatched Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart, and then he ducked out of the ring unscathed. As if things couldn't get any worse for the NWA, well fans, I'm sorry to break the news to you, but this was the final Monday Night Raw match for Barry Windham. Much like Al Snow, Wyndham was also saddled with a host of lousy gimmicks in the WWF, including the Widowmaker, the Stalker, one half of the new Blackjacks, and now an overweight bleach blonde cowboy. And of course, as is customary, because this is Wyndham's final match on Raw, it is now time to send him to Wrestler Heaven. Stalker enters the World Wrestling Federation. Those predators will become my prey. Stalker. Brings a damn tear to my eye. Before we move on to the next segment, Jim Ross informs us that Stone Cold Steve Austin will be part of a brand new TV show, which will begin airing on MTV this Thursday, right before the Seinfeld finale. There's a good pop culture landmark for you. And that show is called Celebrity Deathmatch. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Diamond. I'm Johnny Gomez. And tonight, we are proud to introduce our special commentator, the high priest of whoop-ass, wrestling champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Thanks, Nick. Hell, I think it's safe to say this is going to be one for the record books. Celebrity Deathmatch premieres Thursday at 7.30. It's right before the last Seinfeld show. Fun fact, that first episode featured Jerry Seinfeld versus Tim Allen, Mariah Carey versus Jim Carrey, and Monica Lewinsky versus Hillary Clinton. Topical. Up next, we head backstage where we see that Stone Cold Steve Austin has finally arrived, the real Austin, not his claymation counterpart. Kevin Kelly updates him on the stipulations Vince McMahon made for Over the Edge earlier tonight, as well as the fact that he will be competing in tag team action alongside an unnamed partner against unknown opponents. Austin asks where Vince is, and when Kevin says he doesn't know, Stone Cold amusingly grabs the mic from him and starts walking away with it. But he doesn't get very far because the cord isn't long enough. Oopsie. Our next match is Hawk, accompanied by Animal and Sonny, versus Skull, accompanied by 8-Ball, but not Chains for some reason. This was a pretty short match, which mostly consisted of a lot of brawling, with occasional skirmishes between Animal and 8-Ball outside the ring. Much like they did a few weeks ago to defeat the New Age Outlaws, DOA executed their patented twin magic routine where 8-Ball rolled Skull out of the ring and pretended to be weakened, but then when Hawk went to pick him up, 8-Ball very sloppily rolled him up into a small package to pick up the three count. And of course, in true Hawk fashion, he kicked out a half second after the pinfall and popped right back up to his feet before 8-Ball did. The man is consistent in his no-selling, you have to give him that. We then cut to more pre-taped footage of DX at the CNN Center. On this occasion, they actually get into the building, but security tells them they can't film inside because it's public property. Billy Gunn tells a guard to let Ted Turner know they're here to see him, but apparently that tactic doesn't work. We then get a montage of them walking around the building while the DX theme music plays. Mm, not their best effort on this one. We then cut to another pre-taped ambiguous vignette hyping up the debut of Edge. This time around, he's walking through rainy streets, ascending a staircase, and hanging out with some random woman on a rooftop. While this is going on, the narrator sounds like she's reciting really shitty poetry with lines like, He is the god to which you pray, the devil you must repay. He is the bullet in the gun, the pain from which you run. Even just saying this back, I'm cringing a little bit from how shitty the narration is. But for you sharp-eared listeners out there, you may recognize that the woman doing the narrating of this middle school creative writing class submission is the same woman who can be heard saying, you think you know me, at the beginning of Edge's theme songs. Fun fact for you. We then go backstage again where Bradshaw is teaching Taka Michinoku how to smoke cigars and drive a car because, uh, I guess they don't have cigars or cars in Japan? Sure, why not? I feel like this may be the first instance of the Bradshaw we later end up getting in the APA, because he's actually getting to display a little bit of his personality. After he and Taka take the car for a test drive, as soon as they park back inside the building, Club Kamikaze jumps them while they're still in the automobile and start beating on them with very shitty-looking punches. Yamaguchi-san is with them once again, but this time he isn't wearing a mask to cover his face. It should also be noted he can clearly be heard referring to the group as Kai and Tai instead of Club Kamikaze, so I guess we may officially have a new name for them now. Up next, we go back to the arena where greatest character ever Tennessee Lee tells the Baltimore crowd to get off their lazy northern asses and welcome Jeff Jarrett, who has his new JJ Pyro hanging above the ring. Double J's opponent this week is Farouk, who is accompanied to the ring by Jarrett's nemesis, Steve Blackman. 
And on that note, it almost seemed like the roles were reversed here, because Farouk would throw Jarrett, the heel, outside of the ring, where Blackman, a face, would beat him up behind the referee's back. Very curious. Eventually, Farouk picked Jarrett up to give him the Dominator, but then Nation of Domination members Mark Henry and Kama ran into the ring and caused the disqualification. Blackman ran into the ring to help out Farouk, but while he had his back turned, Jarrett grabbed his nunchucks and walloped Blackman in the back with them. He then nailed him with one more nunchuck shot to the chest for good measure as Kama and Mark Henry got the better of Farouk. Jarrett then choked Blackman with the nunchucks and nailed him in the back with them one more time as the announcers played up how vicious Double J was being. So vicious and yet still so silly looking. Up next, we cut backstage for a brief segment where Stone Cold Steve Austin is angrily walking around the arena. However, we then saw him walk right by Triple H, who was sitting down and reading a piece of paper. Frankly, I'm surprised Austin didn't attack him, given the fact that Hunter was helping Shawn Michaels ambush Stone Cold so often in that lead-up to WrestleMania. Perhaps I should also send Kayfabe to Wrestler Heaven this week as well. Now, if you're watching this episode on the WWE Network, when we come back from commercial, you will randomly hear Jim Ross say, Good God, stop the insanity, before hyping the fact that some of the Baltimore Ravens are in attendance for the show. That seems a bit random, as though the WWE edited something out of the broadcast. Well, guess what? They did just that. Amusingly, what was cut out was actually an ad for the Briscoe Brothers Body Shop, narrated by Vince McMahon himself. It very much looks like a cheesy local television commercial, except for the fact that the man doing the voiceover is a goddamn billionaire. In fact, I'll play it for you here, because I thought it was actually pretty awesome. Uh-oh, better call Briscoe. Briscoe Brothers. Jack and Jerry Briscoe, the tag team champions of auto body repair. Briscoe Brothers. Don't let your car go down for the count. Briscoe Brothers. Briscoe Brothers Body Shop, located in Tampa, Florida. It's worth the drive. And now, thanks to the Raw Attitude Podcast, that commercial is no longer lost forever. Up next, your WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin makes his way to the ring. He grabs a microphone and immediately flubs his line by saying that Vince McMahon has stacked the deck against him at Over the Edge by appointing a guest timekeeper and, quote, a guest bell ringer, which are basically the same thing. He says it doesn't bother him one bit because he and Vince hate each other, so it comes with the territory. He then challenges Vince to come to the ring and give him some information because he doesn't know who his tag team partner or opponents will be in his match tonight. Instead, Vince shows up on the Titantron, still wearing his referee shirt, with Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe standing next to him. Vince asks the Stooges if they've heard anything about who Austin's partner is, and when they say no, all three of them then do the three wise monkeys pose, aka see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Austin then amusingly says they can cover their eyes, ears, and mouths, but they can't cover their asses, and that's exactly where he's going to stick his title belt later tonight. Really, though, that kind of seems like a waste. I mean, he spent so much time trying to get the belt only to shove it up one of their asses. Might, might want to rethink that. As soon as Austin walks up the ramp, we then see Sable stretching backstage as we are reminded that she is going one-on-one tonight against her husband, Marvelous Mark Merrow. As guest co-host Troy said a few weeks ago on this very podcast, prepare yourself for the death of a career. You may recall that Sable challenged Merrow two weeks ago on Raw, so my main question is... Have they been living together during this time span? Are they separated? Are they in the same house but ignoring each other the entire time? I feel like we're owed an explanation here. However, before we get into that match, we get a montage of all of the previous Val Venus vignettes with the usual screen at the end which says, Val Venus is coming. Spoiler alert, Val Venus will be coming 
next week. Yes, his debut match is only one short week away. Prepare yourselves for plenty of gyrating and inappropriate sexual innuendos. And now it's time for your 10 o'clock p.m. spousal abuse confrontation as Sable is set to face Mark Merrow. During this segment, we get another one of our patented Sign of the Times moments, thanks to Jerry Lawler's references to Viagra, which had just recently been approved by the FDA and was featured on the cover of Time magazine one week prior. Viagra and the Seinfeld finale, that's where America was this week, folks. Sable grabs a mic and says she never thought Mero would take it this far, but she'll give him her best if this is what he wants. Mero then picks her up on his shoulders in a fireman's carry and gets her in position to hit her with his TKO finisher as she helplessly kicks and screams. However, Mero puts her back down and says, You see what I could have done to you? I could have TKO'd you and knocked you out for good. Eh. However, Mero is a gentleman, and instead he wants Sable to apologize for trying to ruin his career. Sable grabs a mic, and then this happens. You want me to apologize? That's right. Here's your apology. Sable walks up the ramp and waves goodbye to Mero, and that is how we conclude this segment and presumably their on-camera relationship. They'll remain married in real life for six more years. To the credit of the angle, you could hear the crowd really did pop huge for Sable powerbombing Mero, and this feud between them has been built up for about six months now at this point, so the fans were pretty invested. Bravo to the WWF for building the hype, but oh, if only the angle would have ended here. Stay tuned for that. We then cut back to the announce table where JR and Lawler are still in disbelief about what just happened when, out of nowhere, The Undertaker just walks right up to them. You may recall that last week the WWF cameras accidentally picked up a conversation between Lawler and Paul Bearer where the King asked Bearer about how he impregnated Taker's mom and the dead man is none too pleased about it. Taker punches the King a few times then rolls him into the ring where he proceeds to deliver a choke slam. He sets Lawler up for a tombstone as well but then... The lights go out. Taker drops Lawler to the canvas as Kane and Paul Bearer stand at the top of the ramp. Bearer says that Taker either has gotten his feelings hurt by Bearer's comments, or he just doesn't believe him. Bearer reminds Taker that he didn't believe him when he told him that Kane was still alive, but of course he was telling the truth about that too. Next week, Bearer claims he will prove to the world that he is Kane's father. So I guess maybe he has video of the conception? I guess we'll find out. Once Kane and Paul Bearer leave, the lights come back on, and we see that Jerry Lawler is attempting to leave the ring, so Taker picks him up once again, and this time he does manage to hit the King with a tombstone, which will result in Lawler vacating the commentary table for the rest of the night, which really makes you wonder, why couldn't it have been Michael Cole who got caught mocking Taker's mother instead? After a commercial break, we cut back to Jim Ross, and now we see that Al Snow has made his way to the commentary table. He grabs a headset for himself, and, amusingly, he also puts one on head as well. 
J.R. tells Snow he could get in trouble for being here, presumably trying to insinuate that Snow is still under contract to ECW. Snow says, what are they going to do, fire me? I tried to quit. Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe soon arrive with a pair of security guards who try to get Snow to leave. He keeps repeating that he needs to see Vince McMahon, but security just wants him gone. Snow rolls into the ring and holds up head, then escapes through the crowd as J.R. openly references Al working for ECW. Very interesting that the WWF is trying to blur the lines of reality here by playing it up as though a wrestler from another company has wandered into their arena. I don't know if the actual relationship between Vince McMahon and Paul Heyman has ever been fully laid out around this time, but I think at this point it's relatively common knowledge that the two had a working relationship with each other. You may recall that several ECW wrestlers appeared on a February 1997 episode of Raw, and Jerry Lawler actually appeared at ECW's Wrestlepalooza in June of 1997. All in all, Good stuff, which benefits both companies. Next up, we cut back to more pre-taped footage of DX down in Atlanta. Triple H proclaims that Operation DX is now complete. They aim the gun of their military vehicle at the CNN Center, and then we get really shitty-looking computer effects of the building exploding because DX was the original Al-Qaeda. This then segues us back into the arena, where DX are now heading to the ring with Hunter sporting a CNN Center building pass above his crotch. X-Pac says WCW tried to have them arrested, but the cops would never be able to take them alive. He then references a promo that Eric Bischoff cuts on Nitro that same night, so apparently DX was watching WCW backstage. Also, more on that Bischoff promo later. X-Pac says he never asked Bischoff for an apology, and he never kissed his ass, which is why he doesn't work for WCW anymore. Road Dog then grabs the mic and does his Tag Team Champions of the World routine, and you can tell that more and more people in the crowd are gradually starting to recite it along with him. Triple H does his Let's Get Ready to Suck It routine, and then he tells the Baltimore crowd how much they love them, so I guess we can now officially say that this is the night where DX turns face. To further back that up, we get an interruption by Nation of Domination member Owen Hart, who now has an awkward version of the Nation theme song, along with audio of him saying, enough is enough, and it's time for a change. Owen says that he and Triple H have unfinished business, so Hunter tells him to come to the ring and settle it. Owen walks down the ramp, but then he motions for the rest of the Nation to join him, so The Rock, Mark Henry, D'Lo Brown, and Kama come to back him up. And apparently we're actually going to have a match here, European champion Triple H versus Owen Hart with the belt not being on the line. With Lawler headed to the hospital and Al Snow escaping through the crowd, JR needs a new broadcast partner, so Jim Cornette joins him on commentary. I would have preferred Tennessee Lee, but I suppose Cornette will do. I thought this was an enjoyable match, but it ended on a rather strange note. Owen climbed to the top turnbuckle, having to avoid a fan's paper airplane when he did so, and Triple H climbed up to stop him, so Owen bit Hunter's ear, causing his mouth to fill with Hunter's blood. We saw him do the same thing to Ken Shamrock a few weeks ago, so apparently Owen is copying Mike Tyson's gimmick. China then crotched Owen on the turnbuckle behind referee Jimmy Corderas' back, and things broke down from there as DX and the nation started to get in each other's faces outside of the ring. Corderas went out to separate them, followed by Commissioner Slaughter and a bunch of WWF officials. Jim Ross then informs us that Slaughter has just stopped the match entirely, and so we head to commercial. I feel like Slaughter could have just banned the two factions from ringside like he usually does, and the match could have continued, but I guess we hadn't hit our nightly quota of bullshit finishes quite yet. Up next, we see a non-face-painted Dustin Runnels dragging a barrel at the top of the ramp with his gold dust costume draped over his shoulder. He holds up the costume and one of his wigs, and he drops them into the barrel. He then proceeds to take a can of gasoline and pour it on top of the gold dust attire. He pulls a book of matches out of his pocket, 
lights it up, and tosses it into the barrel, causing his costume to become engulfed in flames. Dustin picks up a microphone, and then he says this. Mitch McMahon, I have worked too damn hard for you for three years. The Rhodes name goes way, way back and has a lot of honor, a lot of pride, a lot of dignity in it. But what I don't have right now is that dignity because of you. Because you took that dignity away from me because of your sick imagination. You've yet caused me to lose my father, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. I don't know even blame that one on Vince. Probably the only thing you can. And most of all, you've caused such heartache with me losing my wife, Terry, in Dakota. And why? Over, over a wig? Over being a freak? Well, and yet you still punish me by sticking me in the ring with Kane because I couldn't beat Stone, Stone Cold Steve Austin. You punish me every day, well that just ain't gonna get it no more. You look right dead into these flames, Vince McMahon, right now, right here, gold dust dies tonight. Listen to that! And Vince McMahon, you look into my teared eyes right now, and you will never forget the name of Dustin. And so, after roughly two and a half consecutive years of portraying Goldust and the artist formerly known as Goldust, Dustin Runnels has now burned his costume and completely renounced the character. Spoiler alert, this is the last you will ever see of Goldust in the WWE or WWF. I mean, obviously. The first thing I'll mention is that during that clip, you could probably hear one very loud fan in the crowd yell the anti-gay F-bomb at Dustin on three separate occasions. I dare say that man may have anger issues. But my main question from this promo is what exactly did the WWF have planned for Dustin here? He's been Dustin Rhodes in the past, in both the WWF and WCW, both with very underwhelming results. Are they banking on Dustin getting over now solely by virtue of the fact that he's getting rid of his freaky, androgynous character? I guess we'll find out. Without spoiling too much, judging from events which later happened tonight, it really seems like there may have been plans for him to be elevated to a main event level, so stay tuned to see how that plays out. Our next contest is Terry Funk and Scorpio, not too cold, just Scorpio, versus Kai and Tai in three-on-two handicap action. So yes, they have now officially changed their name from Club Kamikaze to Kai and Tai. We begin with Yamaguchi-san walking to the ring by himself, waving a red and black flag, and he gets on the mic for the first time to tell the fans that they are all, quote, scumbag Americans. He says Kai and Tai can strike any time, and you'll never know where or when, and on that cue... Funaki, Togo, and Teo emerge from under the ring to jump Funk and Scorpio from behind. A couple things here. Number one, Funaki had some sweet, long orange hair. And number two, it looks like Teo stole Lex Luger's old tights from when he was the narcissist. If you happen to remember those, there was a little triangular flap that just kind of hung down around the crotch area and sort of swayed in the breeze. They looked incredibly similar to those. But anyway, I thought this was a really fun, fast-paced match, but it ended when Takamichinoku and Bradshaw ran into the ring to chase Kai and Tai away, which resulted in a disqualification. 
Bradshaw in particular was wildly swinging a rope with a cowbell on it, which I imagine would hurt quite a bit if it actually connected with someone, but then again, JBL isn't exactly known for having regard for his opponent's well-being. We then get a quick cut backstage where we see Vince McMahon talking to someone and saying that Steve Austin has never had a physical specimen like him as a tag team partner. Of course, our vision is obscured, so we can't see who Vince is talking to, but I imagine we're going to find out in just a little bit. After a commercial break, we see Al Snow knocking at the arena door trying to get back inside. A security guard tells him that he can't get back in unless he has a ticket, but he has now apparently lost his. Security takes him away once again, as Jim Cornette amusingly says there are no free tickets at the arena, because this isn't WCW. Zing. We then cut back to the arena, where the Nation of Domination is heading to the ring, because we haven't seen them in roughly ten minutes. Your WWF Intercontinental Champion, The Rock, grabs a mic and says, Finally, the fire between Stone Cold and The Rock reignites. So it appears that Rock and D'Lo Brown will be facing Austin and his mystery partner in the main event. With the match about to start, we hear Vince McMahon on a microphone somewhere. He says, and now, Stone Cold's tag team partner, being led to the ring by Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson, here is Vince McMahon. Sure enough, Vince emerges from backstage, and he is still dressed in his referee shirt for some reason. He stands on the ring apron, and The Rock jumps Austin from behind to start the match before Stone Cold can get in Vince's face. Austin quickly tosses Rock and D'Lo to the arena floor, then he himself exits the ring and bonks Patterson and Briscoe's heads together. Rock starts walking up the ramp, so Austin hits him with a pretty vicious clothesline that causes Rock to fall hard back first onto the ramp. Eventually, Austin and Rock make their way back into the ring, where they trade momentum back and forth, with D'Lo getting tagged in a few times as well. Toward the end of the match, Rock and Austin hit each other with a double clothesline, and Austin then slowly crawled to his corner... But instead of tagging in Vince, he flipped him off and also gave him an audible fuck you as well. Austin tossed Rock and D'Lo out of the ring again, but then, when he turned around, Vince ran into the ring and hit Austin with a clothesline. Patterson and Briscoe then picked Austin up so Vince could get in some more shots, but Stone Cold booted Vince in the stomach and knocked the Stooges to the ground. Dude Love then ran into the ring and started beating on Austin, but that only lasted a few seconds before Degeneration X and, of all people, Dustin Runnels ran into the ring to help out, followed by the Nation of Domination joining the fight. A huge brawl erupted with the crowd going apeshit for it, but unfortunately, we went off the air right as the fun started. The WWF and WCW have both made a habit of this lately, where their respective shows go off the air right in the middle of something happening, and they never follow up the next week to let us know what went down after the shows went off the air. Good stuff. But for those of you scoring at home, that final segment featured Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, Triple H, Mick Foley, and Vince McMahon. So basically, the five guys who would go on to be the most synonymous with the Attitude Era. Not bad company to be in. There's obviously a lot more to discuss here, but for now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap 
For the past two weeks, Raw crushed Nitro in the ratings, mainly due to the fact that Nitro was airing in a later time slot, or the show was one hour shorter, because TNT was showing NBA playoff games in WCW's time slot instead. This week, the NBA was not a factor, and we were back to our normal head-to-head matchup. So how did the ratings turn out this week? Well, it was actually a tie. Both shows ended up scoring a 4.3 rating. This was only the third ever tie in the Monday Night Wars, and it was the first stalemate between the two companies since October 9th, 1995, when both shows scored a 2.6. And for comparison's sake, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro. Disco Inferno defeated Barry Horowitz. Kidman defeated Juventud Guerrera. Scott Norton defeated Yuji Nagata. Hugh Morris defeated Jim Powers. Ultimo Dragon defeated Johnny Swinger. Goldberg defeated Len Denton to retain his United States title. Fit Finley defeated Chaos to retain his world television title. Diamond Dallas Page defeated Lenny Lane, but what was more notable was the promo DDP cut after he won the match. I'm going to include a quick clip of it here because you have to hear it to believe it. You know how DDP puts his hands up in the shape of a diamond and yells bang as his catchphrase? Well, take a listen to his promo and see if you can figure out why that ends up backfiring on him this time around when he calls out Raven. And let me just say in advance, I did not alter what he says in any way. This is not some audio chicanery on my part. DDP actually says this on his own. Yep, that actually happened, folks. That's why you need to listen to the Raw Attitude podcast. I scoured the internet to find forgotten gems like that, which were otherwise completely lost to time. You're welcome. Continuing with the Nitro results, Glacier defeated Sick Boy, Chris Benoit defeated Booker T, and in your main event, Macho Man Randy Savage defeated Hollywood Hulk Hogan by disqualification, so Hogan retained his WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Yes, WCW gave away Hogan vs. Savage on free TV. I realize they were both a bit older at this point, but that match probably still could have drawn some money on pay-per-view, right? However, there was one more noteworthy moment which occurred on this episode of Nitro. With DX recently invading WCW's Nitro taping and their company headquarters, Eric Bischoff apparently felt like he had to do something to address the issue. With that in mind, he rode a motorcycle to the ring on Nitro, grabbed a microphone, and said this. But you know, as I look to the crowd tonight, I wonder what you must be thinking. And I wonder what Vince McMahon is thinking. You know, because for the last couple of weeks, he's been sending his little wannabes around, demanding to talk to moi. Problem with that is, He only sends them where he knows I'm not going to be. But that's okay, because I've got a solution. Sean Waltman, you want an apology from me? You actually show up at our offices on a Monday afternoon when I think you probably got it figured out. Even you, Sean, are smart enough to figure out I probably won't be there. And as far as the apology goes, bite me. I apologize to no one. But I 
because, Sean, I know you're just a little puppet. You do what Vince McMahon tells you to do. So, Vince McMahon, this is for you. I'm coming to your backyard this Sunday. That's right, where's some ass? Got a little pay-per-view thing going on. And I got a hell of an idea. Just a hell of an idea. You want me? I'm going to be in your backyard. Consider this an open invitation, Vince McMahon. You show up at Slamboree. It'll be me and you, McMahon, in the ring. Well, he's got me with that one. I buy a ticket. About it, Vinny. But I want to warn you people right now, if you think Vince McMahon has got the guts to show up, don't buy this pay-per-view, because I guarantee you he is not man enough to step into the ring with what? But I'll be there, Vinnie Mac. I'll be waiting for you. And I'm going to knock you out. See you there! The challenge has been laid down. Will we get McMahon versus Bischoff live on pay-per-view this Sunday at Slamboree? Well, you can probably figure out the answer to that. On a related note, I'm also going to take a clip from WWE's Monday Night War DVD from 2004, where they discuss Bischoff's challenge to Vince. Take a listen to that as well. When DX showed up, I had to counter with something. And I thought, I don't know, I'll take this, I'll take the focus off of DX. As Hulk Hogan said, man, you, you, you might, and this was privately, he said, Eric, you, you might not want to do this. I said, because he will show up. I said, I don't care if he shows up. He said, yeah, but Eric, keep it's a good chance he's going to kick your ass. Vince McMahon elected not to accept Bischoff's challenge. He was busy. Yes, that's right. Eric Bischoff, a real-life black belt in Taekwondo, had to say on that DVD that Vince McMahon, who was at that time 52 years old, could kick his ass. Too bad we never got that matchup. Also, I love their explanation for Vince not showing up. He was busy. So clearly, Vince absolutely would have shown up to lay a beating on Bischoff because Vince McMahon is a god who never backs down from a challenge, but his schedule just wouldn't allow it. If you're going to present a documentary as factual, maybe they should have said this instead. There is no fucking way Vince McMahon would have ever shown up at a WCW pay-per-view because that would have given his main competition the most publicity they've ever had at a time when the WWF finally started beating them in the television ratings. Ugh. Total horseshit there by the WWE. I'm sorry, but that part of the DVD always bothered me. So let's just move on to the Raw synopsis. I've got to say, I really love this episode of Raw. The whole show really had that feeling of what the hell is going to happen next. Al Snow's at the door. Now The Undertaker is beating up Jerry Lawler. Now Dustin Runnels is burning his gold dust costume. Now Vince McMahon is Steve Austin's tag partner. It was one surprise after another, and it really worked very well for me. Vince Russo frequently gets flack for his brand of car crash television, where it tends to be one quick angle after another, but when it works, goddamn, it really works very well. If you get a chance, definitely be sure to check out this episode. A big thumbs up from me. And when I discussed it with Martin on our last episode, he was also a fan as well. So you have two ringing endorsements from two prominent wrestling commentators. Sorta. 
So there you have it. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, just like our new friend Carl Grice did, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I leave you now with... Ah, fuck it. Let's end with that DDP clip again, because I still can't believe he would actually use that phrase twice and think it was a good idea. Enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Come on out now and let's shoot it back right